Jeff Ogilvy survives Wingfoot. Now the moment Aaron Bradley has waited. Curry Webb is the five-time Australian Open champion. Golf at its best by one of the best in golf, Peter Thompson. Stand in front of a crowd like this today and win the PGA Championship is pretty special. He's done it at last. Greg Norman. his name on the Stonehaven Cup. Leishman to 11 under. Now we've got a new leader, kids. Here is Adam Scott. A life changer. Coming up next, you have unrestricted access to golf across Australia and the world. Thanks to Golf Australia, we're going inside the ropes. Subscribe now on iTunes or your favourite podcast app or head to golf.org.au. G'day everybody, welcome to the show, it is Inside the Ropes, episode number 125. Gee, they keep piling up, don't they? Lovely to have you with us on a show that I'm looking forward to, uh, being part of Graham Marsh, one of the legends of the game, not only here in Australia, but around the world's going to join us, and I know already we won't have enough time to go everywhere with um, Graham, but we'll make this um, make this episode one of Time Spent with Graham Marsh. Uh, Martin Blake sits uh, opposite me. Hello, Hello Gazelle. Good to see you. Graham Marsh is kind of one of those guys that gets kind of undervalued, I think. Well, I don't know why that is. But, not you know. by me, he doesn't. Uh, I loved it. He was one of my favourite sportsmen growing up. Yeah. Irrespect, I'm not just not favourite golfers. Mike Clayton's the man saying yep in the background. It's a great segue. If, you were, if we were to ask you right now to put him somewhere in the rankings of Australian male golfers, let's, let's just keep just talk about the men, would he, does he occupy a spot in the top 10? Uh, yeah, probably around. Ten probably. Yep. I mean, obviously the guys have won majors, but I mean, if someone said he's the fifth or sixth, I was. Hmm. Marshy was an amazing player. I mean, he was a great ball striker. He was, was all, he a low he was ball hitter, by bunk. the way. Low no, ball, not lowish, but he controlled the ball in the wing because he played a lot of golf in the wind. But amazing iron player, yeah. great driver, awful bunker player, <laughs> awful, and kind of a you know a defensive putter, not a great putter, but a really good solid. Good, he held the ball out well. Mm. But just pounded the ball onto the fairway and onto the green year after year. Yeah. He won 20 times in Japan. So, well, there's some oh, – d- depend mm. what, depending on what website you go to to check his career data, there's different numbers all over the, the 50 place. 50 wins? Well, like I've, I've read 64. I've read yeah. 70. I've read 25 yeah. wins in Japan. So there's a lot of different – He won a lot, didn't he? Yeah, he yeah, yeah. Lot. He won a lot of stuff. Marshy, yeah. He won a lot in Europe. He, he, he didn't play in America until 1977 and went there and – it was in the top five almost every week, and then he won at Hilton Head. Yeah. So he just and he'd never been there. Well, you know, I need to go to America to prove myself. And he pretty much played there for one year, went back to Japan, I think. And you know, and he he was a true world player. He mm. played in Japan. He played in Europe. He played in Australia. And he was a he was an for people who underrate Graham Marsh, they really underrate him. But of course, they don't, they have lots of kids who never saw him play. No, well, of course how, not. How yeah. good can he be? Well, you know, he had that old Black McGregor drive. He just Pounded that thing out of the middle of the face on every shot, and the old Dunlop irons he had, he just he, he pulled it out on the green all the time. <laughs> Not all the time, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Know, no one had eighteen greens, but he was a fourteen green man, fourteen green around man, year after year. And importantly, Blakey, just magnificently in an understated way, magnificently attired. Every time he stepped out, 
had the he, he wore had the, the cardigan on. Yeah, the cardi, but always the often the vest, often the yeah. sleeveless cardigan or the vest. Yeah. The 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 oversized visor. The visors were always a bit bigger in those days than they are now. But he always had the visor because he had that thick thatch that he didn't have to worry about his head getting sunburnt. He was always you were a bit of a you were a bit of a fashion plate in your day. You didn't mind um, sort of you know styling it up a little bit, but. In, in an understated way, Marsh was always beautifully presented on a golf course. Well, he had a contract with Dunlop, Dunlop in yeah. Japan. The Japanese always made the best clothes. Right. So I guess he wore mostly Japanese stuff. But he did. He three-putted the last hole at Kingston Heath in the 1976 Vic Open to lose. Well, no, to go into a playoff with Guy Wilson, how much he lost. Rocking a pair of check shorts with long socks. <laughs> what? Wow. Even he made that look good. <laughs> That's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. Is there any visual the, documentation well, of this anywhere? I'm sure. If we went, I'm sure there's a picture of it somewhere. But... Oh God! If anyone's got it, please tweet it into us at Inside the Ropes. And of course, I'd love to see that. Elder brother of Rodney Marsh, mm. one of the greatest mm. cricketers who ever pulled on a wicket-keeping glove, mm. uh, if we can put it that way. And uh, I think he actually played a. A bit of cricket for WA as a, as a he was junior. A, he was yeah. a good, he was a really talented yeah. junior player, apparently, so, just to make that choice. Good choice. Good choice for our uh, main guest today. And, and hopefully Lindy Goggin and her granddaughter, Haley, Hallie Mayburn, are going to join us on the show a bit later yeah, on so as well. So they won the uh, Royal Hobart Foursomes Championship a couple of weeks ago. So we thought it was a lovely story to have a granddaughter, uh, grandmother team winning a big board event like that so we'll get them on and Clay you obviously know Lindy Goggin and her golf um, extremely well I, I think I think you said that she's probably one of the better players that Australia's ever produced who didn't oh, yeah, turn pro sure, yeah you know, well, she, well the best that never turned pro she's yeah a tremendous player and of course Matt was a hmm. and they won the open playing with Tom Watson at Turnberry that fateful day that's mm. a rich and vast sporting footprint the Goggin family has left behind hasn't it in well, Australia Billy like, was a Legend of oh, And Uncle legend. Matt. Uncle Matt played nearly 90 yeah. games, I think, for Geelong. And Charlie was a great horse trainer. And yeah. so they've crossed the divide. And apparently, Hallie is quite a good footballer as well, I'm told. that She it, likes the footy, apparently. Mm, I'd like to ask her about that. Mm, get her out of school. We're trying to get her out of school. She's only 16, Hallie. So, so we'll see how we go with all yeah, of that. Yeah. Um, before you know the bits and pieces of the week, those who are, uh, who are keen listeners to the program and followers of yours, and that's most of the people listening to the show, probably notice there's been a change in your life this week. I was saw this tweet pop up about this new website and this new design company that you're part of. What's happened in your world in the last seven days? Well, there's a new partnership with Mike DeVries, who did Cape Wickham, and Frank Pont, Dutch architect. So we're straddling the world. I'm probably going to spend some time in Europe in the summer next year. And um, Lucas Michel, who won the Men Amateur, did the website for me. So I saw that. I'm, yeah. So I'm going to caddy for him in the US Open. So I'll be in America a little bit. So. Yeah, it's a change for me, and I'm looking forward to the challenge. Right? <clears throat> Excuse me. And yeah, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So, can you tell us why the change? Uh, well, not really. Okay. No, I think yeah. we all decided it was my time was up at OCCM, and yep. the opportunity came up to work with Frank and Mike, and they kind of spoke to me about it, and it sounded like a good idea to me. So, I mean, you know, I, was, uh, <clears throat> I kind of love the business of golf course design. It gives me a chance to go overseas and work in Europe and America, and I'll still spend a lot of time here doing some work. So it's, it's going to be a challenging time, and I'm looking forward to it. You know, I, I, I think a lot of fun. Yeah, well, good luck. Thanks, mate. We love you. So we hope that it goes bigger and better than anything you've been involved with before. So all the very best with that. Um, 
What's the biggest penalty you've ever sustained in your? Did you ever have a horror show anywhere that no, just rivals a, anything like the like the types of which we've seen this week? Uh, just a two, same as most people, two shots. That's it. So you, two shots. I, might, I think I got DQ once for forgetting to sign a scorecard in Canberra. What was yep. the penalty for the infamous putter incident? That was, it was, was only one. A, one shot. And now it wouldn't be a penalty at all. Ah, because you're on the green. Yeah, yeah. ball at rest moved mm. accidentally. No penalty, mm. which is. So there should be a penalty for stupidity, which I think is where we're going, correct? <laughs> Unbelievable stories this weekend. You can forgive uh, Leanne Walker, uh, who incurred a penalty. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure there's ever been a bigger. 58-stroke penalty in the Senior Women's LPGA Championship over in America. Extraordinary that, um, you know, you can compete at that level, even if you haven't played for quite some time. And the rules have gone through some seismic changes, obviously, but... 58-shot penalty for repeatedly having a caddy stand behind her when lining up. And they putts, went back and said, up putts, yeah. yeah. And they went back and said, oh, that happened. It's beyond belief that she didn't know, her caddy didn't know, the two other players in the group didn't know, and their caddies didn't know, and anyone watching didn't know. How can you go that long without I don't someone know. saying, what are you doing? I don't know. So it happened on the second day, is that correct? Correct, So, so yeah. they had to go back through a card for the first day, and yep. they, they she's ended up with, I think 127 for the first round. Uh, and then halfway through the cell, another 16-shot penalty on the second round. So unbelievable. So without the penalty, you should have missed the cut by, by shot. By one, yeah, <laughs> which, is, which is an unbelievable story. There's um, a famous story about Kel Nagel who wrote his nine-hole score in the box for the ninth hole. So he wrote 36 yeah, or whatever it was. Yeah. And so he got a... Well, he was accredited with 36 for the ninth hole. Well, that's ridiculous. So as long I mean, as you're seriously. over, as long as you're over, not under, you, you'll get that score, won't you? Which is what happened to Robert DiVincenzo. Roberto DiVincenzo signed Robert, for one more than he had. So, so I think he had a had a he had a three on the, he had a three on the 71st hole at Augusta, and he signed for a four. Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's a putting a number in the wrong box. I mean, some of the rules are just ridiculous. Which is well, I remember playing with David Graham once, and I wrote the nine hole score in. And added his card up. Like, that's what you do when you play amateur golf. And I just turned prone. He said, don't ever add my card up. Don't ever, don't, all you've got to do is write the number 18 down. numbers yeah. down. Oh, right. Don't ever add it up. Don't ever write a score in there. Interesting. So I never did again. Because he said, if you make a mistake, if I'm three putt the last night, I'm angry, and I see the totals right. Yeah. I, I, just write the numbers down. Okay. And, and that's a great lesson for anyone who plays pro golf is don't ever write anyone else's score down. Just write the numbers down. That's it. Yeah, don't yeah, add yeah. it up. Don't do anything. Marcel Seem is less forgivable, I reckon, given the fact he's obviously not where he wants to be with his golf at the moment. His head's in a thousand different places by the sounds of things. He's gone on social media and, you know, sort of made some statements and apologised and, you know, admitted that his sort of head's kind of in the clouds a bit with, with his game at the moment. But, but for a player who plays routinely on a major tour like the European Tour to make the mistake that he made, and incur a 10-shot penalty because he breached five times. Lift clean plays. It's incredible stuff. So do you know if there was some suggestion earlier in the week that it was going to be lift clean plays? Don't know. Well, Don't hadn't, know. hadn't they the previous two weeks had been, had been playing it or something? Or there was mm. something – there was some – but I mean, how can – it's just bizarre. Don't know. I don't know. Some, one of your playing partners or one what's, of the what's rules. Your, what's your caddy doing? Well, that's just – yeah. So yeah. he cops 10 shots and then he DQs himself because yep. he feels embarrassed and – Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and walks off and can't compete. So well, it's not that he feels embarrassed; he can't make the cut. Can't make a million miles away. <laughs> better that show. So that they're remarkable. That that was a. I don't know how much whether you guys were watching this before. I do. Do you like? 
I'm going to I'm going to make a statement and I'm going to throw me on the on the lamb to the slaughter here. Mm. I love watching tournament golf at that golf course. The national. Yeah, I love it. I love watching tournament golf there. Now I don't tell me whether it's a whether you judge it as a a I've good said, golf I've course. Said he's going to whack it. I've got a feeling you will, but I there's some drama. It creates drama. There's some dramatic shots you've got to play, and there's some lovely visuals and this water but, carries. But I don't know. Oh, but there's a couple of other. Yeah, there's you know there's raised greens that you've got to hit into, and there's some carries of, I don't know, there's just bits and pieces um, that make it look like dr- some dramatic golf's got to be played on that golf course. My problem is it was built on a not very good site, kind of made to be a faux links with artificial mounding, but then with a TPC finish to it. Yeah, so there's a bit going on. And it yeah. could have been in the middle of <laughs> Chica- Chicago or Ohio. Or, and we used to play the French Open at Chantilly, quite not that far from there, which is an old Tom Simpson classic French course, beautiful clubhouse. You know, proper French golf. And I think if you play a national open, it should be a reflection of what golf is. Yeah, in the country. fair enough. Yep. And going to play a course that's just a fake American golf course is not doing it for me, especially when you move from Chantilly. And you know, we, were, we were lucky. Morfontaine, which is one of my favorite courses in the world, was right down the road. And they would let us come and play after we'd played around. So it was, all, you know, the French open was always a 36 hole day for me. Right. So it was, it was a beautiful tournament. Saint Germain, Saint Cloud on the great classic Paris courses, it was a beautiful tournament. And it just lost something when it, you know, it was a, it was a Novotel. It was kind of a fake copy of an American course. It was difficult. And it was in good condition. And it was a, you know, the finishing holes were dramatic, but it just wasn't. Okay. You weren't, you, you weren't in France anymore. Okay. Okay. Now that's all, that's all. Point that's taken. all. That, points taken. But, it, but it, it is to the eye on TV. I take all your points, mm. but to the eye on the tally, it does make for well, more interesting golf to watch than a lot of the stuff we see from the other side of the Atlantic. Well, the, well, the finish is a lot like what we see at the Players' Championship. Yeah, yeah, we'll go. See, know, yeah, 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 yeah. The fifteenth hole where Cole starts it in the water, the short yeah. par four across the water, it's easier. <laughs> and then eighteen, when we played eighteen, it was a par five, so it was a you know it was a reachable par five, but it was a it was a scary second shot with a two iron. Now it's a Cole starts with a five on in there. So mm. it's a much less scary shot with a five or six on than it was with a two on. So were you watching it? I, was, I found myself I watching it. I almost else. had to turn off. I, when he made, he, made, he missed two, four, five footers consecutively on five and six. Oh, that's, that's when I turned it off. I thought, oh. Oh. But, well, I still thought he was going to win. And it was late. And I thought, I'm not going to watch that. It was, it was another three hours yeah. watching. I t- when I turned, I saw he won. Then I saw how he'd won. It was crazy. So he had the eagle and then the double, and it was all over the shop. Because he's, of course, married to an Australian, Nicholas Colson. Right. Yep. Sydney, I think. And uh, he'll be out for those. He was messaging me saying, I think he's going to come out for the President's Cup. He's certainly going to play the Vic Open, hopefully. So um, he's a great friend of Australian. Golf. So he had to win that. Massive hitter, right? Eh? He had to win that to keep his card. Was that, was that the reality for him going No, he didn't have to win, in? but he had to make a check. Right, okay. Okay, so it wasn't quite that dramatic. Yeah, okay. As probably did Lucas Herbert, mm. who finished tied 14th. It was actually a very important week for him because he's been around about that bubble and it just... So in terms of that, how does that see Herbert well, it's, situated? It just makes him a bit safer. I'm not yeah. sure whether he's totally safe. No one quite knows exactly because they've changed the point system so that you can't look back on last year because it's a different system. But, um, you know, it's around about 110 players keep mm. their cards. It's, it's, a, it's a little yeah. bit more than 110 because he's a, he's a few right non-members. He's a that. decent check, I think. I think he's 98th yeah. uh, he's on the rankings at the end of this week. So a couple of tournaments to go. Well, so. There's only Portugal, I think. So Yeah. 
because the race to Dubai thing doesn't. That's only for top seven. Top places. Yeah, so I think he's, yeah, he'll be all right. But yeah, important week week for him and Colsarts had the win there, and Justin Thomas uh, won again in Korea. Andy and uh, Cameron Smith had a good week, which leading into the Presidents Cup is quite important. Finished tied third. Jason Day had a very good first round, uh, but then fell away. Um, but subsequently, has won the skins game. Did you oh, see any of that uh, in Japan? Oh, no, I, didn't, I didn't bother. No, um, no, yeah, no. Uh, no. It didn't sound like none of them played particularly sounded, well. Tiger got horrible. through the round, only hit ten fairways, and Day just putted well and and won the won the skins. And they probably split the money out before they started and faked it anyway. So, uh, well, he, so Jason Day wins two hundred and ten thousand. And the rest of them don't get to 100. Do we, do we think Tiger's flying all the way to Japan no. for less than 100? Well, no, and of course not. I think he's got the money in the bank before <laughs> he gets on the plane, isn't he? So um, going back to the Thomas win, the Cam mm. Smith performance, I mean, he was just outplayed by Thomas, but he played unbelievably well, finished strong. Yeah. And in the closing the last, I think. Yeah. The last. He, a, he, he kind of he hit the shot. He didn't look that happy with it. Kind of a sclaffy sort of <laughs> something, middle line, but five on something, another par five that finished up four or five feet away. And I know... And he, Birdied 17. It was four under the last Birdie three, I eagle, think. I think. And he, he yeah. leapfrogged. I mean, in terms of, I know it's a, as a pro, it's about winning, but it's also about making money. And I know it's a bit, you know, it's a bit undignified to talk about money all the time. But in his case, that, that closing stretch of golf that he played saw him out from in terms of where he was at the start of that little run to where he was at the end. He's added about $380,000 to his bank. Where he was, if he had to finish where he was before he started, sort of part home, he would have finished tied 18 and made 120 grand. He's finished tied third or third outright, and he's won 500 and something thousand. So in terms of making some money, which is you know what you want to do as a pro, he's smashed it late. Would he, Clates, uh, Cameron Smith, be getting anxious about winning? Because... The one thing that he's won in America is the, the Zurich thing, yeah. which was a, a team's thing with Jonas Blixt. So would he be getting anxious? I know he's won the PGA but um, here in Australia. but I'm, I'm sure he'd like to. But but I was going to say, every every pro, no matter who they are, unless they're one of the megastars, is anxious about the top 125. You want to take mm. care of that as early yeah. as you can. Because you look at the guys who don't make the top 125 every year, there's some pretty good players in there. Mm. Mm. So... You know, Cam's a tremendous player, really good player, but he's at a level where you just want to take care of that early on. It's nice to have five hundred and fifty thousand in the bank in October, yeah. knowing that you're pretty safe. Yeah, and then you go on and make your two or three million and have a great year and try and win. But you know, for the hundred and twenty-five players out, play out out there, there'd be sixty or seventy if they're honest would say, "I want to make sure I get to that eight hundred thousand dollar number first before I." Do anything and clear your mind of that line. Like getting into a position early, I imagine the difference would make in terms of your ability just to go and play and not worry about the number. Uh, that 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 has to lead to you playing better golf yeah. ultimately, doesn't it? It was a crazy stat. Someone I think a few years ago there were there were it was when Jeff Ogilvie had kept his card for thirteen. It, it finished in the top one twenty five. Not kept his card, but finished in the top one twenty five for thirteen straight years. And there were five other players who'd done oh, that. Oh, yeah. yeah. John Sendon was one. I think Furyk, Kucha, mm. Tiger hadn't because he was injured one year, but Mickelson mm. probably. But, you know, it, it's not, it's mm. no guarantee. that. And, and, to, and to keep making that 125 year on year, players don't last that long out there now. There are good young players coming out. And, you know, to, to make a big check in career in October is a big deal for 
a lot of players on that tour. A couple of other bits and pieces we'll get to on the way through, but Graham Marsh is standing by and ready to join us. So let us clear a break here on Inside the Ropes and one of the legends of Australian golf going to join us next. The Golf Australia website is now the place to go to look up your handicap and so much more. Whether you're out and about on your phone or in the office trying to avoid work, just go to golf.org.au and punch your golf link number into the box at the top of the homepage. Who knows, maybe that last round was just good enough to put you in single figures. While you're on the site, check out the daily golf results at your club, view our course index for up-to-date ratings, read the latest golf news from home and abroad, listen to Australian golf podcasts and interviews and watch video tournament highlights or tips to improve your game. It's everything a golf tragic could want. Visit golf.org.au today. The home of Australian golf. Welcome back to Inside the Ropes. Uh, Lovely to have you with us. And what a joy it is to have one of the giants of not only Australian golf, but world golf. Not just with a golf club in his hand, mind you, but uh, the contributing legacy leads to the game through his architecture and design, uh, a multiple winner. Uh, Many times over around the world, of course, I talk about Graham Marsh. And it's with great joy that we welcome Graham Marsh to Inside the Ropes. Graham, thanks for your time. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate it. Nice to be here. What's um, occupying most of your time these days? Is it still knee-deep in the design and architecture business? Yeah, totally. Um, You know, once you get to uh, my age, at the ripe old age of uh, 75, there's not a lot of competitive golf left out there unless you really want to be stupid about it. uh, (laughs) I don't intend to do that. But uh, So it's been mainly design, and we're heavily involved. There's a total remodel of the, the Singapore Island a country club, which is a historic golf club in Southeast Asia. I played my very first overseas professional tournament there at the Bukit course many years ago. But uh, sadly, the government are reclaiming those the Bukit and the Siam course in that location, and they'll they'll finally relocate to the Upper Thompson course. So they Upper Thompson Road course, and so they have to remodel. Um, to get another 27 holes up there for the members to play because they have a very large membership. But uh, it's just a sign of the times. There's about 17 golf courses in Singapore and they're probably going to end up with about 10 or 11 or 12 at max here in the next uh, 10 years. So they're losing the Bukit course. Wow. Yes, they are, which was home home to the World Cup. I can't remember who played for us in that World Cup. Mike Clayton's a historian. He might remember that. Billy Duncan, Bruce Crampton maybe? That probably sounds right. Or yeah. Moody and Trevino played for America. Yep, yep, that would be right. I think. Yeah. So, Tate's will probably uh, reel off the scores now, no, 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 Graham. No, no, no. In a moment, yeah, I, I expect him to. <laughs> just give him a moment. That's right. I just thought I'd give him an early opportunity. <laughs> this might be going down a rabbit hole and and stop if if it is. But um, the the kind of politics of um, some of these Asian nations. You know, we've heard so many stories about China and. Uh, it sounds like there's, you know, bigger issues at play in Singapore at the moment. How, how difficult is it to navigate your way through those um, challenges doing what you do? Well, I think uh, overall, um, to be fair, I think most architects have had a pretty good time of it in Asia uh, in the last 30 years, 40 years, um, Singapore, Malaysia, Philippines and so forth. I guess the one problem in recent years has been China where, the central government have just suddenly said, well, we're not going to build any more golf courses. We don't support golf here. And I think part of it was because of the amount of time that the uh, um, the bureaucrats were playing on the golf courses. And they weren't really getting on and serving the uh, 
serving their constituents all that well. Um, and the other issue I think that uh, really has, has has hurt them is the um, there wasn't a, a nice way of doing business in procuring the land to, to build a golf course in many of the provinces. And I think eventually they saw the, the folly, the government saw the folly of the, of the ways of some of the provinces that were doing this. And, and they just thought, well, it wasn't right. And uh, I would concur with that decision. But I think in the last, if my memory serves me correctly, in the last four or five years, they've actually come in and bulldozed at least 100 golf courses in, in China as a, as a sign of defiance that you'd better get your proper license in, in place before you even start thinking about building a golf course. And so it's really a uh, really a hot market right now, not hot market in the sense that there's nothing happening and uh, you, you, there's not very much work going on in China. It seemed like golf kicked a lot of own goals up there with that permitting stuff, but there was a, the course Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw did it on Hainan, Shankwin Bay, which is a top 100 course in the world. The 17th fairway is covered in a, tree, in, in a forest now. They can't play the 17th hole. So they right. Had, so they had to build well, a little part think... three to get to 18. But, but for some reason, the government yeah. said you can't have that land or, or, you, or you shouldn't have had that bit of land. Plant trees on it. Yeah. So it's just <laughs> yeah. crazy stuff like well, that. Well, and, and it's, uh, you raise an interesting point, Mike, because, in fact, if there was any one place that got away with building golf courses more than what they should have, it was on Hainan Island. Um, we did uh, we did three courses there, and uh, and we just you know they were fairly generous with that. You know the island being off there, and it was sort of remote from Beijing in the sense that well it used to be, and of course they 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 did their own thing down there, but they were also um, they were also designated um, a tourist zone, and that's why they were allowed to get away with it on Hainan Island. They don't get away with that in some of the other provinces. But you're right. I mean, the government will have full control over, over what they're going to be able to do with, with uh, every piece of land, and uh, that makes it very hard for a developer to take a risk, and there's not many taking risks these days. When you look back at the work that you've done, Graham, in this area for 35 years, I guess it is now, is there one project that um, you're most fond of that you think is the, the kind of signature course that you've worked on? I, I, I think um, I never tried to, you know, to make signature golf courses. I, you know, the, you, you, we've got to remember that um, it's, it's all very well to talk about the top 100 golf courses and it's already well say, well, the, you know, these are the great golf courses and so forth. But we've got to go back and sort of look at the history of that. And I'm not trying to avoid your question. But I'm just trying to explain how, you know, you can't really get too attached to so many of these golf courses because if they're, if they're involved with real estate, you compromise from day one. And I just go back to what I said, and, and Michael, I'm sure, will have his input on this. But the reason they're the top 100 golf courses is because they were built on beautiful pieces of land. And there's no real estate to really interfere with the with the way those golf courses were, were originally developed. Once you bring real estate and state into the equation, you start crossing roads and you start compromising on safety issues and vegetation and all of those issues. Um, you just don't produce the, the result that you would if you had a perfect piece of land that was uh, core golf. In other words, you could put golf wherever you wanted to put it. And, and that's what makes golf courses great. Second thing is, is that we must remember that this industry was driven many years ago, not because people wanted to build golf courses. It was because they wanted to sell residential. Yeah. And so the, many of the owners that went into it, and I would say specific in Australia 
and more specifically in the United States where there was a huge number of golf courses. You've got to remember they were opening more than one per day in America there for one period. You've, you had this horrible situation where the owners that were going in there buying the land, all they wanted to do was just build a golf course and if it was with a signature name, they figured that was going to be enough to attract somebody to buy their second, third, fourth or even fifth home in some places that they were only going to use for maybe five or six weeks of the year. So the golf was secondary. And once that residential sold, the, the, the golf just, well, you, you take it after it yourself. And, of course, there were clubhouses built. There were 10 million, 15 million to attract the, the home buyer. I mean, the cost of operating a clubhouse like that is absurd. And the cost of maintaining golf courses that were built purely for um, for trying to sell residential they would spend any money amount of money on the golf course because they wanted to sell the residential they became very high maintenance uh, uh, animals that you just had to look after and it made it very difficult for the game to succeed and that's why there's been so many of them that have been shut down in recent years they weren't done for the right reason golf's a sport we should be playing it as a sport and that's why they should be built so it goes back to saying, well, which ones didn't have I really enjoyed in Australia? Well, you know, we haven't done a lot of golf courses that have been other than, than residential courses. And uh, so they have been compromised. But, you know, if you had to, if you had to pick some, I would say that, uh, you know, I was always, I, I think in recent times, I think the, the uh, zone hasn't been fully open yet, but I do believe the one in Sydney, Bingara Gorge, is, will be a very... Is a fine golf course. Um, it's all been done. It's been finished, but they've they've uh, wasted time with uh, some of the residential, and of course, it just hasn't been fully fully open. But when it does, I expect that to to get some some quite uh, quite good interest from the golfing community in Sydney. Of course, um, the ir- sorry, Matthew, go on. Go no, no. Go I was going to say the irony is that places like Sandhills and Sutton Bay, and which you obviously yeah. uh, Bone Burgle. Sand Valley, those sort of places, um, Bandon, they've been the ones that have been the most successful because they were built on golf. You know, yeah, they, they were. They, they developed. The developer said, "Well, I want a, I want a quality golf course. I want to go back to the traditions of the game, and I'm not interested in the real estate." They they were done. I never forget Bill Kubley uh, from Landscapes Unlimited. I'm sure you know. Yeah. Between him and Kubley and and Wadsworth, they they built almost a thousand golf courses in America between the two companies. Um, Kirby was our, uh, our original uh, uh, guiding and, uh, president and guiding light. And we were sitting there one evening and he said, you know, he said, we will do it, but we will only do it for the right reason. And there couldn't have been a truer statement. If you want a great golf course, that's what you have to do. You have to build it for the right reason. And, and there's a good argument. Sorry, you go. Just go ahead. No, you go. No, go ahead. I was going to say that there's a good argument that we should probably not stop building new courses. There's still a place for that, but we'd be much better off fixing up the ones we've got. Yeah. Oh, in prime locations. Exactly. That, I mean, that, that's true. I mean, I, I think we've had success with, with Royal Pines um, and in, in the, it is much that it was very much a, a rundown tourist course and, and, and they built it into something we were given the brief to to get on and build it with a limited budget for, for Queensland um, to, to turn it into a golf course where you could actually stage a championship. Well, um, again, the, the hands are tied when you do those things. But I think we, we 
we, we had a result. The members like it. There's there's very good play there. They've upped their membership and uh, and they were able to stage a championship that where the players were tested. And I think so. There's to that point, Mike. I think you're a hundred percent right. I mean, the, the the best courses in Australia are still in the best locations, and that's the, the the biggest problem that we have trying to grow the game is because time. And if you start building outside those metropolitan areas, it's very hard for people to devote the time to, to play golf. It's a it's a huge problem that the game faces. Graham, uh, what impact does the the distance that the ball is flying have on an You're talking architect? about Mike Clayton's favourite favorite subject. <laughs> I, I know, he's just sort of shuffling in the seat as soon as we mention that. You can but, have a go, Marshy. I'll, but you, you, I'll leave it to you. How does it impact you when you're designing a new course that, oh, that may well, or may I mean, not be it, played by professional players? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a sad situation uh, for my money and uh, I know that Mike and myself have had this conversation on, on, on you know, many times, but it's just when when I first entered the the golf course design industry many years ago, our landing areas were at 220. Now that's where even yeah, the good players were 220 meters, yeah. meters, meters. So um, you know, 240 yards, which was which was quite interesting. Now, and, and we did a number of courses of that area. And, of course, you know, the, the best thing we could do now is go back and fix them because all the bunkers are in the wrong place. <laughs> but now, you know, 35 years further down the track, it's 270 and it metres. So we're almost at 300 yards now. So, you know, it's been 60, 70 yards just in my time in the industry, which is crazy. Um, you know, it's been one of the great tragedies of the game. We were, I, and I, you, we were given this load of guff by the industry that if we were to um, go with all these clubs, these game improvement clubs, that everybody was going to play better, and, and of course the ball would go further. And they kept developing that as their as their theme. Good commercial arrangement to make more money. Uh, that's what you do when you're in that industry. But the problem is. The player didn't get better. The handicaps have gone up. The equipment's more expensive, and there's less people playing the game. So it was a great lie. It was just they bamboozled, bamboozled everybody, including the USGA and the RNA. Completely so, bamboozled everybody. So, so if you if you could recommend one thing, Graham, that that the administrators um, would listen to, what 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 would that recommendation be? Well, the only way they can get back to some semblance of, of making uh, the, the great courses uh, and, and making the game you know, more enjoyable for everybody and, making, and, and putting it in a position where it, where, where it had its biggest growth many years ago is to, is to reduce the distance the ball goes. That's their only tool that they have left. There's nothing else. I mean, in terms of even the costs of building golf, every 100 yards costs a developer... X hundreds of thousands of dollars in terms of maintenance and in terms of giving up land that could go to real estate sales and going going and so on. It just goes on and on. I mean, it's absurd. Irrigation costs, you know, which where we in this country where we're suffering with water. I mean, those things are out of hand now, and we've got to find a way to bring that back. But the only people that are in control of that are the governing bodies, mm. and right now they're not doing a very good job with it. Marshy, let's um, talk about your playing career a little bit. Oh, yes. Um, talk to me about oh, a couple of things I thought we should talk about. The 83 Open, and if the wind hadn't died on the back nine after you'd finished, um, your recollections of the Australian Open, probably the biggest tournament you didn't win that you probably wanted to. Um, right. 
playing golf in the United States. You know. One at a time. I mean, you're loading him up with a yeah, few. So, so let's go the 80 through 64 in the final round. What happened? The, the wind died down, did it, once you signed your card? Yeah, well, you know, Birkdale, which was one of my favourite golf courses of all times, and, uh, and you know, until I think Royal Port Rush came on the scene this year, I think most players would agree that it was probably the best open course they played, although some would say not the toughest, but it was probably one of the fairest. Um, I was uh, eight shots back going into the last round and we got out there on the Sunday and, I mean, it was, the, the flags weren't just straight out. They were pointing up. I mean, the wind was howling. And uh, I probably shot my finest round of golf that I've ever shot in my life. I shot 64 the last day in that wind and uh, and turned around and uh, um, got into the clubhouse. And uh, i never forget it because I, I walked into the locker room and Arnold Palmer was sitting there, the great man, and... Uh, and he said, what did you do, um, Swampy? I said, well, I, I shot 60, 65. He said, 64. He said, you did what? And I said, I shot 64. He said, well, he said, and then his next comment was, he said, well, I wouldn't be going anywhere in a hurry. That <laughs> might just be good enough. <laughs> so anyway, um, we sat there and I had my good friend from Western Australia, the professor who was um, uh, CEO of three universities in this in this country, including... One, the founding one at Bond University here on the coast. He was caddying for me, and uh, and so we just sat and waited. And uh, actually, my brother was there. Rod was there as well. Uh, he and his wife, and uh, we were all sort of sitting around and waiting for what happened. So we went back to the house that I had somewhere there and uh, sat and watched things unfold on television. But it was just one of those things. It, it kept blowing and blowing and blowing. And by the time the leaders had, had arrived at the um, the ninth hole on the final day, they, the situation was that I was leading. They had fallen behind. Then, you know, almost on on point, the flag suddenly started to whimper a little bit, and the back nine became a little bit easier. And then they started the game. They started to pick up their game, and there was Watson and uh, Andy Bean and Hale Irwin and all quality players, and they all took advantage of that. And all of a sudden, you know, I finished up finished up being two shots behind at the end but it, it was a close call and uh, that was uh, it was a fun time to be sitting there as the leader of the British Open one that I wanted to win that was one of my goals that's what I wanted to do in, in, with my career but it never came about the other time I got within two shots at Carnoustie the year that uh, Tom Watson beat uh, Jack Newton in uh, in the playoffs the following day yeah. 75 so I got within two shots of it there and two shots at uh, at Birkdale, but never that was it. Had a number of other top ten finishes, but just never never could get there. So uh, disappointing. And I never played enough majors in America at the time, really, to be a serious contender. Although I did finish in the top ten in all, all of them at some stage or, or another. Yeah, if you were playing but, now, uh, you'd have played you'd have played every one. You'd have been top fifty in the world automatically, and you'd have been you know playing four a year for fifteen years probably. Yeah, well, that, that and that was the difference. I, I made that as a as a choice, and uh, that's why I enjoyed so much going back and playing the Champions Tour and winning a couple of majors there because it just U.S. Senior Open because I, I just felt like it was something that I I should have done, didn't do, and uh, anyway, um, it was a bit of, a little bit bittersweet, but it was it was still a great thing to go back and compete in the United States. Because uh, it's the greatest, uh, greatest competition on the planet right now. 
And we're coming around to the Australian Open pretty soon. Talk us through uh, Metro in 79. Uh, I think the closest you ever got, you're runner-up to Jack Newton there. Only a shot in it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Should you, should you have yeah, won that well, or...? Oh, you know, you can always say I should have won and so forth. Probably, um, if history is, you know, if, if my memory is correct, the one I should have won was the one that um, J.C. Sneed won at Royal Queensland many years ago. And uh, because I finished up three putting, I think three of the last uh, four, three of the last four holes to to lose by a shot or two shots, and I was playing with Sneed. Um, that was probably the the one that I could have won. I think I was in contention at Metro, but uh, always always close. But just didn't didn't really, you know. Jack was uh, in one of his those belligerent moods that he was in, where everything <laughs> he, he looked at, he was going to hole, and uh, <laughs> that's just about what he did. <laughs> it was quite fun to watch. <laughs> Are you, I don't I don't want you to be boastful here, but I I, I was looking at your your stats, and um, I, I, Clates was talking to you about your major champion. You played in thirty three, I think, and you made the cut. In thirty of them, that's an unbelievably high percentage, Graham. Is that is that something that you look back on, you know, with some, you know, some kind of pride? No, I don't. I mean, well, I, you just gave gave me a statistic that I never knew about. So the answer, the simple answer, is no. no I don't. Okay, there you go. Now I feel, <laughs> but now I feel pretty good about it. Thank you. <laughs> no it's but, a good uh, number. It's a good number, isn't it? Like it's an incredible number. <clears throat> yeah. Well, I, I think. If I had to say, well, why did that happen? I think it was probably because I was the best part of my game back then would, would have been my tee shot. I knew how to keep the ball in play. And if I would credit anybody with that, I would two people I would say that I would credit with that. And one was Thompson and one was Nagel because they were both great drivers of the golf ball. They, they always used to say, that's not where the game starts. And back then, of course, where... The ball where where we were swinging the golf club and not just making this massive hit at it as the, as the players are today, there was a certain amount of control involved. And certainly in the British Open, where you had the small ball, the 1.62, which was you know you, you had to control it because you started to lose control of that with, with the wound ball. I mean, hooks would be finished two fairways away, and you know it was just the ball could curve, and that's another thing that the ball doesn't do today as much it doesn't curve as much so it 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 made drive it made the strongest it gave me the opportunity because the strongest part of my game i was playing on the golf courses that were set up the toughest which gave me a you know i think you know just a little bit of an advantage over some of the players in the field who weren't as good at drivers and usually in a major if you miss your tee shot you pay the ultimate price and whether it's a half a shot or a full shot or more that's what happens in majors Still making courses at 75. Uh, have you got any plans for retirement? It, it sounds to me like you're one of these people that may well have been more passionate about this aspect of your life than even even playing. Would that be fair? Um, yeah, I think I think when you're playing, you, you, you have this goal that you want to win and you want to do this. And, and, you know, I started pretty late, 25 years of age, which is, would be, be considered. I mean, there's guys winning majors now at 21, or they were even back then. Gary won, I think, his first major at Clay 12, was it 20 or 19 or something, that British Open? Um, 1959, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so he was, was pretty, 24, and Nicholas... Sir, 24. Well, Nicholas was certainly very young when he won his. 22, uh, yeah. US Open, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so it's it's 
25 is a late start by any stretch of the imagination. And uh, growing up in Perth, by the time I went out to play on the tour, I'd never played more than three 72-hole events in any one year. And these guys were playing 35 and 40. So I had a lot of catching up to do. Um, If I was going to compete, it would be half useful out there and try and make a living. And uh, so it was a a real grind to, to make that transition for me. But uh, yeah, I'm well. I'm passionate about golf course architecture because when I was approached to be involved in it, it was at, at the first reasonably high level was when Daikyo came came involved with Palm Meadows here on the Gold Coast, and I didn't know I'd been approached to do this, and and I had a long discussion with my good friend who I talked about earlier on, um, Don Watts. And it was, I was about 32 or 33, and I, and I said to him, I said, you know, I, just, I can still play a little bit here. I don't, really don't want to be too, spending too, too much time running around thinking about architecture at this stage. And he said, well, you've got to remember one thing. Golf will end. Playing golf will end, and you never know when that's going to happen. And he said it would be kind of nice to stay in the game with golf course architecture. And I said, right, well, that's good advice, and I take it on board. But I said, if I'm going to do it, I'm not going to be a player that just endorses a golf course. I'm going to learn about golf course architecture, and I'm going to study golf course architecture, and I'm going to know how to do it and do it for the right reason. And so that was my principle of uh, starting into architecture. It was, I think, like building a golf course. I did it for the right reasons, and so I am passionate about it. And I do love it and because there's a creativity involved. It's, uh, there's longevity involved. And so you go down this path of uh, enjoying your life and, and growing the game, which gave you the opportunity in life. And I think, Plates, that's, you would get the same thrill out of that, seeing people play on your golf course, seeing young kids play there, seeing people enjoy them, even seeing people dislike them for whatever reason it may be. But at the end, it gives you a lot of satisfaction to believe that You've grown again and uh, and tried to take it to another level, despite you know, the fact that um, it's, you don't always get what you want. Well, it's what Mackenzie was talking about. We've banged on this point enough, but mm. you know, people give up golf without knowing why. That, you know, he, he was talking about people leaving St Andrews and going to play golf in England and giving up, but and, and not understanding why. So it was it was because the courses weren't interesting. Yes. So you know it's incredibly important to make interesting golf. I mean, th- there's a place for rudimentary golf, but. The more interesting golf is, the, the, the better off the sport's going to be, for sure. Yeah. The, the, the biggest struggle today, I find, is the, the, the two authorities got it backwards. They have given the advantage to the good players and made it more difficult because of trying to make, as Mike says, trying to make golf courses interesting. And that made it more difficult for the average player. That is completely backwards of where we should be going. We should be making it easier for the good players to enjoy it and at the same time making it more difficult for the great players. Mm. Now, you know, when you can get that combination right, then people will start to enjoy it more. But you see what happened in that era where we had these golf courses being built for the wrong reason. Everybody said... Just give me the best golf course you can can. Just give me one where it's, you know, everyone's going to come here and say, wow, that's fantastic. Well, the problem with that is, is the average player couldn't play them. 
Hmm. You had people 55, 60 that were going to these golf courses, despite the tees and despite all of that, they were struggling to play these golf courses because bunkers were deep and the greens had all kinds of undulations and they finished up not really enjoying themselves too much. So it's getting a combination right that's going to grow the game. And uh, you know whether we get, whether it means that uh, we just separate um, the good players from the bad players, uh, that's fine. But like, we just see we just don't have those numbers anymore. Handicaps keep going up. I mean, when I was playing, the average handicap was probably about fourteen or something. Now, I mean, we're, what are we at now? We're probably we're probably at eighteen, 18. or nineteen. I don't. Know. Eighteen. That's right. Eighteen. It is now. Yeah. Yeah. The average player. Yeah. yeah. Graham, you've got yeah. one game left in your life. Where do you go and play? Well, there's only for, for me. There's only one place, and that's St Andrews. Is where it all started. Yeah, that's the uh, that is the the holy grail. Is it the best golf course on the world? Certainly not. But is it a place that you can go to and uh, and just walk around there on a beautiful Scottish evening and go out there and enjoy the links and enjoy the the sound of the birds and the gentle breeze, feel the gentle breeze and the waves and just understood who's walked on that hallowed ground, who has played that golf course and who has taken ideas from that golf course and the history of the events that have been played there. Uh, it's inspiring. Um, but as I said, is it the best golf course? No. But is it a still a challenge today? Pretty much. They've had, all I've done is really added a little bit of length. It always bears its teeth at some point during the, during an open championship. And... Uh, I think it's just a wonderful place. We, we, last one from me, and I fear that I might be inviting you to f- finish my questions um, on a negative, but we spent a lot of time on this show talking about the current game and um, results and performances. Do, do you watch much golf these days, Grant? Do, do you get any joy out of it? I, I, I always pay, uh, I pay a lot of attention to the majors because I think that's where the players are, are being the t- tested uh, to their limit. Um, it, you will recall there were days when if you... Well, just I'll, I'll back up just one step. I think a, a really good test of golf for, for a championship is if we can get that score somewhere between 10 under par and 14, 15 under par. If you get that as a winning score, then I think you accomplish a lot. You, you, you Players have an opportunity to show their skills. Players are tested at that level. The galleries enjoy it because they're not watching boring golf where players are shooting three or four or five over par on a golf course, which is virtually unmanageable. And the promoters of the game get a good opportunity to to get excited about it and and feel passionate about watching this this great play. But you see so many guys out there today. I mean, look at these scores that they're scoring on some of these golf courses and courses that are supposed to have some kind of reputation. They're shooting 24 under, 25 under. What is that telling us? Mm. I don't understand that. But and and it'll be on golf courses and you know at, at sea level that are seven thousand four hundred, seven thousand five hundred yards. So it's quite uh, quite unusual uh, to see the variety of golf out there. And I must say, I don't enjoy watching a putting contest. Mm. That's not what I want. I want to watch a game of golf where where there is some serious shot making to be made and uh, some keeping it on the fairways of value, hitting a green is of value and uh, and managing a way around the golf course is value. And that's what I think is the most interesting form of the game. Yeah, I think that so I watch the majors. Yeah, the Justin Thomas twenty five mm. under at Medina was uh, just the most I mean great well, golf, it's a it's so boring. I mean I mean yeah. that was a I mean Luke yeah. Graham won the open there at three over par in nineteen seventy five and 
45 yep. years later, they're shooting 25 under on a plane of greens like baskets of washing. But I'm not sure if you saw what happened last week in the Japan Open. There was a guy who was four or five shots ahead with four or five holes to go. It was one or the other and finished 10th. Mm. 10th. He yeah. finished like wow. bogey, triple, par, double or something. And the winning score was winning only, score only was a couple under, what, two think, or three under. I think Adam Scott was fifth at five over. Mm. I mean, I mean, and, I mean, the Japan Open is always a brutal test, but sounded like yeah, it was well, crazy the thing, last yeah, week. Yeah, the thing that they do in the Japan Open is that, that they've got a lot of golf courses there that uh, that are probably um, uh, of the 2,200 of them, I think we, we could probably discount many of them. Um, plates because yeah. of the you know they're on tops of mountains and so forth but they have this sort of uh, um, I don't know they've always had the twisted view in the Japan Open the fairway should only be about 15 yards wide I don't know how they set the thing up there but yes last year I didn't see any on television coverage or anything but once you start you know doing silly stuff on a golf course then you can bring up some silly scores and uh, they they had a tendency of doing that even 30 40 years ago Hey, Graham, there's a million things we could talk to you about. Uh, we've only got a limited amount of time in here and we don't want to hold you up too much, but it's been um, a joy to have you on the show. You're one of the legends of the game in this country and uh, it's always a pleasure for us to spend time with people like you. Thanks so much for being as generous with your time as you've been and um, we look forward to catching up President's again sometime. Cup. President's Cup, of course, yep. that'll, be, that'll be fantastic. Well, um, well, I can give you a story about that, but I tell you what, if, if you don't put your money on the Americans, you, you're going to... You're going to... <laughs> I wouldn't be backing the international team right now if I were you guys. No, it's pretty strong. Uh, and the other mob are pretty strong, aren't they? I thought you were going to ask me about that, but it's probably better left unsaid. At no, no, go ahead. No, go on. We got, no, 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 no. We need to hear that now. Oh, well, I mean, if you just look at the field, take a look at it. I mean, you, you, look, at the, you look at where they've, put, they've pulled them and you take... You've got you, and you take the rankings. You've got Johnson at three, Thomas at four, Brooks Kepper at one. Matt, Matt, uh, you know, I mean, you look at look. These are the the rankings that mm. are out there. Um, you know, Matt Cooch is twenty one, and he's the lowest in the field. Well, then you go to the you go to the you go to the internationals. The high, the best the lowest score or the highest ranking player is Adam Scott at fifteen, and the next one is at Ooster, who's in the twenty four. Leishman at 25, and every, everybody else is either in the low, high 40s or, or 50s, and they haven't even got the last three players. Well, you know they're not going to be higher than that. <laughs> so it's it's just an amazing, you know, disparity disparity between the two sides if you start looking at rankings. Mm. And you might say, well, 18 whole matches, yeah, sure, 18 whole matches, and you're playing playing with a guy, and anything can happen in an 18 whole match. And I would say that, but some at some point in the game, they have to play singles. And so uh, I, I think, uh, you know, uh, and you've got, well, the other thing, of course, is Tiger, Tiger Woods is ranked 10th, and I don't even know if he's playing or not. Has he declared it? Not, no. Not as yet. I, I think he was pretty, <laughs> it sounded like he was pretty bad in the Skins game yesterday in Japan, so. Yeah, well, I, I, my guess is that he probably won't and give somebody else a go, but I'll guess, I, I would guess from the uh, from the uh, PGA Tour and, and, and from, uh, from the, you know, from the, uh, the organisers of the event, I would say that they'd be. That it wouldn't matter what he did. I mean, he's just such a <laughs> tremendous draw card. So I think they'll be all over him to try and compete. But uh, boy, oh boy, I tell you what, I, I couldn't believe it when I when I picked it up the other day and I just looked at the numbers. I thought, how in the name of goodness are the internationals going to compete in this event? 
Well, I guess we'll, in sport, you believe you hope for miracles every now and again, and for the sake of the event, we'll be we'll be sort of praying for more than our fair well, share, I suspect. I, I, you know, even regardless of that, I mean, it's just just on paper, it just looks looks horrible for them. Yeah. But I, I hope, I hope for the sake of the game that they they put up a great performance. And as I said, sing, playing in the teams' events makes a big difference. But uh, um, but I'm sure um, you wouldn't. They, they won't won't be a lot of people. But they better offer some good odds because uh, if you wanted to bet on the international, you'd better be getting some pretty darn good odds. Go back, fingers crossed. <laughs> hey, Graham, it's been great. It really has. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Pleasure, guys. Thanks, Thank mate. You. Graham Marsh joining us on Inside the Ropes. Hi, I'm Minji Lee, and I'm proud to be an ambassador for MyGolf, Australian Golf's national junior program. One of my favourite things about coming back to Australia is seeing all the kids getting into golf. MyGolf is every Aussie kid's first step on their golfing pathway. It's all about fun and friendship, learning golf and life skills in a safe and healthy environment. Sir, if your child is between 5 and 12 years old, be sure to find a program near you at mygolf.org.au. Welcome back to the show. Uh, if you're a sports fan in Australia, you know the surname Goggin for any number of reasons, whether it be horse racing, footy or golf. And uh, the the name is being carried on, uh, well, by Lindy, of course, and her granddaughter who goes under the surname Mayburn, and they continue to win things, particularly with golf clubs in their hand, Blakey. It's a remarkable story what this Goggin family continue to do in golf in Tasmania and the great Lindy Goggins has been good enough to join us on the show. We'll get to the granddaughter, Hallie, in a moment. Lindy, thanks for joining us on Inside yep. the Ropes. Not a problem. Thank you. Uh, tell us what you and your granddaughter were able to do uh, down in uh, Royal Hobart not that long ago. Well, we played. luckily the uh, Club Fullerton's um, championship was actually in school holidays. So Hallie and I teamed up a couple of weeks ago and uh, we had a really good first round. The second round wasn't quite so good, but... Um, you know, it was a great thrill for me, obviously, because I started off at 10 years old and I played with my father and won things, and then I went on to playing with my husband and uh, and then my daughter, uh, youngest daughter, and then Matthew, of course, and now Hallie. So how's that for, you know, fantastic. That's, that's a... what, what was it actually like, Lindy, being out there on the car? I know that you've caddied for Hallie before and you, you obviously had quite a bit to do with her in a mentorship sort of situation mm-hmm. but what was it like mm. to actually get out and play there in foursomes because I always I always call foursomes uh, you know sorry golf you know well, hit, hit, hit your ball and say I, sorry <laughs> I think my golf is a bit sorry at the moment oh, <laughs> so she'll probably um, uh, reiterate that and say well you know I had to carry it which is probably what she did well, but anyway it was, well, it was, yeah. well on that note why don't we bring Hallie Mayburn in who uh, was the other member of this successful partnership. Hey, Hallie, thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, thank you. Did you have to carry your grandma around to get to no, get the result? No, not at all. Um, I hit her in the trees a bit, but then she probably wasn't so good from 100 metres out and the putting. So, but yeah, it worked well. <laughs> Because she's being polite. <laughs> what a thrill it must be, though, Hallie. Uh, it, it, we'll talk about how you got into the game, but to um, to have a result like this with, with Lindy, with your grandma, what, what a thrill it must be for you. Yeah, no, it's really good. I mean, I've been so lucky to be brought up in such a good, like, golf environment. So I'm very lucky for that and to be able to play with her. And, yeah. 
Um, when, can, what's your, what was your earliest memory of golf? Can you remember the first time you can consciously remember something to do with the game? Um, well, I used to just go to the clinics just of an afternoon with Lindy and my mum. They used to just take me, just hit balls, and yeah, it's good. How's she tracking Lindy? We've, she's obviously played you know, the junior world that you were part of that Blakey talked about mm-hmm. over in San Diego a couple of years ago. She's got some people around Golf Australia circles talk glowingly about Hallie's ball striking ability. How's she tracking? Look, I um, I have to say she is an incredible ball striker for you know for her age. Uh, she's got strength, she's got length, incredibly long off the tee, and her uh, iron. Uh, yeah, if if Hallie decides to be a golfer and wants to put in the time, um, then she will go a long way. Believe me, she's got a lot of talent. And Hallie, uh, uh, are you thinking of uh, making a career out of it, or you know, I think you're in about year nine or ten at the moment. You might correct me there, uh, but. Yeah, no, great tan, I mean. But, um, yeah, I'd love to do golf. I'm, um, I'm thinking about going to college, I think. I'd like to do that. So, yeah, but, no, I'd definitely like to follow golf as a career. Well, a Can you knock it past your uh, grandmother with off the tee? Oh. You're hitting it out there. Part, oh, Lindy's just <laughs> groaning that's, in the that's background. That's a funny, funny, funny question. Right. Hilarious. So how, how, much, how much further does she hit it than you these days, Lindy? About 50 metres, 60 metres. Uh, so how does she go against Matthew? Can can Matt still our driver? Only just. Right. Actually, we're actually, no, well, Mark, we actually put, she actually played two nine holes with because you realise he was down here last week. Yeah, yeah. And they played two nine holes with him, and uh, I have to say she outscored him both times. They tell me, Hallie, <laughs> um, well, you've, you've answered the question beautifully about, you know, potentially get involved in the game, but they tell me you're a pretty good footballer as well. Is this true? Um, yeah, no, I'm not too bad at the football. Yeah. Well, we're talking to you on um, Tuesday afternoon, uh, the 23rd of October or whatever it is, and the AFLW draft has just been conducted. So the next intake of 17 and 18 and 19-year-old girls have um, been conscripted into the game. Is this something yeah. that you might consider? I do enjoy the football, but I think I'd much rather be a golfer. I think. But I enjoy playing it at the moment. It's good for fitness and, yeah, but I think golf's my priority. Lindy, you look back at your career and Clates, you know, whenever we, whenever your name comes up, Clates speaks glowingly about, you know, your ability to play and, you know, the record speaks for itself. If you had your time over again, would you have turned professional? Is that something that you've thought about? Well, it's so so different now. Like in in, in my I was just saying in the day in my day, um, you went to America and you virtually sort of felt like you never came back, you know, because but the world's so small now. So obviously, yes, I would have turned definitely turned professional, um, if if it was like you know in the scenario that you can have now. But I remember when Matthew only just got beaten in the um, in the Masters at Huntingdale, they in, interviewed him and he said something like, they always mention me, you know, he must get sick to death of it. And uh, why didn't your mother turn professional? And he said, well, I wouldn't be here if she turned professional, would I? So and that answered the question. <laughs> I wanted, fa- you know, he said, I, you know, you didn't sort of, you know, I wanted family and I wanted, you know, I, uh, golf wasn't my exact only priority in life, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for those who don't remember, Lindy lost the final of the US Amateur to... Julie Simpson, Julie who, who became Julie Ingster. Julie Ingster. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Who was like a Hall of Framer. And I think she buried the last two holes to beat you one up. 
Is that right? She did. She birdied the last two holes, yeah. So that was kind of, you know, Lindy was a serious player. Mm. I think 19 Tassie amateurs, does that sound right? Three national uh, or Australian amateurs. Uh, there must yep. be a lot of gold leaf up there at Royal Hobart uh, in the in the Goggin <laughs> surname, and, a, and a, you know a bit more to come now. Well, I'm ho- hoping. Um, I'm hoping she's got club championships on this week, so I'm hoping she'll she'll carry through and win that, and um, go on from there. Like as I said, she has a huge talent, huge life ahead of her if that's what she wants to choose. To do. So last one for you, Hallie, before we let you get back to school or whatever it is you're doing today. Do you, you met, <laughs> yeah. college, you've mentioned college. Is this something that you're already, you know, starting to get interested in and, and talking to people about and thinking about the best schools that you might be able to get to? Is, is, it, is that where you're at already? Uh, yeah, I was talking about it with um, my uncle, Matt, the other day, and he was saying about how many good schools there is, but just you know, going to ones that have good coaches and good programs. So, yeah, I've definitely been looking into it. Well, good luck. All the very best. It's, uh, it's, a, it's, a, sto- it's a story that on this show we're going to spend a bit of time, I think, um, watching and following and uh, hopefully talking about down the track. Congratulations on the win at Royal Hobart and good luck with everything in front of you, Hallie. Thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Good on you. And, Lindy, um, keep up the good work. Keep playing. And uh, <laughs> you've obviously been a massive inspiration for, for that young lady and um, great footsteps in, in which Hallie has to follow. So um, congratulations on the recent win and, and you keep golfing. Thank you very much. Thanks for your time. Good okay. on you. Lindy, Thanks, Andy. Lindy Goggin and Hallie Mayburn See joining us on the show. Hey, Great to have the, uh, Lindy Goggin and Hallie Mayburn on the show, and we wish that young lady all the very best. How good was she, Lindy? She was a tremendous player. Yeah. Yeah. She was, I mean, she and Jane Locke were the, Jane, mm. yeah, they, were, that, they were the best two players for a long time in amateur golf in Australia. But she, was, she had a great technique. She had the ball well. She could really play. And, and she, there's no doubt she'd have been a, a really successful player on the LPJ Tour. Yeah. But as she said, you know, she was, she had other priorities, which, mm. which, which is, you know, I think a good thing. Really. Absolutely. You know, yeah, no it's, it's a pretty, Dominating life, playing on the tour, and you 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 give up a lot. And Lindy's had a great life in, in Hobart, with you know, obviously Matt being a great player and mm. a couple of kids. And Charlie's been a great horse trainer, and yeah. you know she's done fine. Yep. Uh, other bits and pieces, Gazelle. Before we wrap it up this week, yeah, Elvis Smiley. Have you seen him play, Mike? He's the uh, you know the, the oh, yeah. son. He, he won the Capera Bowl. He's I'm, only seventeen I'm, years of age. He's also the Australian Junior Champion. Son of Liz Smiley, the I'm, tennis player. I'm catting for him in the Australian Open. There you go. What, do you think, what do you think? Elvis is good. Elvis is really he good. He should have 1,500, didn't he, at Capera? Yeah, he's good. Elvis is left hand. He's good. I played with him at Metro. That He came down for the tennis the last couple of years we played at Metro. So he's a good player, really good player. Yeah. Lovely, nice kid too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we need to ask, there are two great stories about, which we're going to say. I saw this. I saw this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw this. Yeah, go there's on. There's a great Liz Smiley story about Elvis. And there's a great Pete Smiley story about doing the Bruce Springsteen and breaking into Graceland, which he successfully did and had a cup of coffee, a cup of tea. Are you serious? And got, yeah, he's an absolute Elvis nut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Smiley. Yeah. Right. So we'll save those stories oh, for perfect. the Australian Open Radio. And they're both pleased they'll come well, over. Well, in fact, we'll get, we'll get Liz to tell the story about Elvis and Priscilla, which is a classic story. And Paul McNeely must be 
rolling around and writhing around went with another potential tennis player coming to golf. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. With Ryan yeah. Ruffles, yeah, Gabby yeah, yeah. Ruffles. Yeah. 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 The quarters, I said, just finished second last week in Korea, so yeah. just quarter. So. Yeah. 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 So Adam Scott is coming back to the Australian Open. Yeah, fantastic. At the Australian. Great to see him back. He's missed the last two. Prior to that, he was a great supporter of it. So uh, is this is this the hatchet buried? Uh, whatever whatever hatchet well, that, allegedly existed. I don't, I don't think there was ever really a, a big hatchet. It's been played up a bit that, but uh, you know, if if there was a big hatchet, how come he's coming back? Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, maybe time you know, heals. You know, maybe, whatever. Yeah, maybe he had yeah. his nose out of joint somewhere. I I, I don't know. But yep. he, he was always a, a great supporter of it, and, and it's great to have him back as well as Day. So last year, out of our big four players, uh, we only had one, mm. uh, and rightly people were disappointed with that. So. This year, four out of four. So Smith, fantastic. Smith, Day, Leishman, and Scott, as well as Garcia, Ustazen, mm. etc. So, it's it's going to be a great field at the Australian in November. Get out and, and get your tickets for that. A uh, couple of other things, Andy. Jeff Nicholas, who's just the, before while we're talking about, yeah. sorry, Camp yeah. Champ was announced this week. Oh, yes. The sort of rising young American, one of the many rising young Americans out there, is going to come out and play in the PGA Championship as well, yeah, which I is think great. Graham Marsh's bunkers, uh, yeah, be gonna, they're going to be... You're going over the top of them. Right. We're going over the top of those with the three on. If he carries one, um, yes, well, um, Bryden McPherson wasn't that uh, thrilled about Cameron Champ coming to play out here in the Australian PGA. Did you happen to see his no, tweet? No, I missed it. No, uh, he just thinks that it's a bit of a joke just bringing long bombers, you know, and trying to sort of capitalise on that. Yeah, okay, right. Yeah, on. Have a look at the tweet. It's worth looking I at. Will. Brian, Brian yeah. first. Jeff Nicholas won the WA All Abilities, which was part of the WA Open, uh, which Michael Sim won. Incidentally, he hasn't. That's a good won, result. Won in a little it? while. No, that's uh, good. Yeah, Jeff Nicholas is the amputee legend. Lost his right leg, comes out of Sydney, runs a turned pro, played on the yeah. Australasian PGA Tour, and he, he won that. And he's going over to Dubai to play when the Dubai World Championship is on the the Tour Championship of the European Tour. Uh, they are having an all abilities uh, competition as part of that. Which so that what what was done at the Australian Open last year is just being mimicked yep. all, all around the world now. And Jeff Nicholas is the biggest legend. Of them all, uh, Andy, I have to do one more plug, mm-hmm. uh, which is for the Golf Australia. You are the master of the plug. If there's anybody I want to plug in, it's, it's, it's you. The swing into spring. This yep. this competition has been going for a while, but it's it's uh, running out of legs. It's it's going. To, I think it's only got another week to go. Uh, Jam packed with prize entrants. So you enter. You're given the chance to win one one of three. $1,000 drum and golf vouchers and the chance to in- instantly win one of 20 three-month KO Basic subscriptions where you can stream over 50 sports live. You enter at winwithgolfaustralia.com.au. And that's about all I have, Andy. Mad if you don't have a go. Uh, Clay, it's lovely to see you. Um, Thank you. Good luck with everything in Thanks, your man. world. Uh, lovely to see you again, Blakey. Good on you, Andy. Uh, great to have Graham Marsh uh, on the show and Lindy Goggin and Hallie Mayburn. Uh, that's it. We're done and dusted for another week. We'll see you on Inside the Ropes next time.